Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razozan. In his new article, in New Left Review titled, Turkey at the Crossroad, UC Berkeley sociologist Jihan Tual writes, 10 years ago, Erdogan's Turkey was hailed in Washington as an example to the Muslim world, a free market, pro-American, Islamic democracy, with high growth rates, renowned cultural monuments, and beautiful beaches. Quote, a model partner, Obama affirmed in 2009, as he congratulated the leader of the Justice and Development Party, AKP. Today, with perhaps 50,000 oppositionists in jail, including scores of journalists, politicians, lawyers, and civil servants, Turkey is exporting radical Islamist mercenaries from its Syrian enclaves to Libya and Azerbaijan, clashing with France, Greece, Israel, and Cyprus over gas drilling rights in the eastern Mediterranean and imposing a brutal occupation regime on swaths of what was once the autonomous Kurdish zone of Rojava. Professor Twal notes that the shifts the regime has undergone requires grasping the limits of the so-called Turkish model and argues that Turkey's latest regional adventures are outcome of the multiple impasses, economic, national, and geopolitical, that have confronted the liberal Islamic Turkish model since the early 2010s. Jihan Twal is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. He's the author of Passive Revolution, Absorbing the Islamic Challenge to Capitalism and the Fall of Turkish Model, How the Arab Uprisings Brought Down Islamic Liberalism. His new book is called Caring for the Poor, Islamic and Christian Benevolence in a Liberal World. He spoke with Shahram Aghamir, and it started by talking about the liberal Islamic, quote, Turkish model, its origins and its characteristics. The first time the phrase Turkish model started to be widely used was actually before the period I'm covering. It's, it was mostly in reference to Central Asia after the breakup of the Soviet Union. So Turkey was being pushed as a model there, but that, that didn't have a very long shelf life. So the broader and more sustained usage started in the 2000s. And the idea was built especially on the first phase, the first two terms of the AKP government, Justice and Development Party government. Western centers of power and influence, such as the New York Times, such as the Economist, but also American presidents were using this phrase to market the idea that Muslim-majority nations needed to follow Turkey. And in what regard? In its combination of a conservative Islamic culture with some liberal political structures, maybe not necessarily a lot of democracy, but some liberal democratic structures, but more importantly, a neoliberal, quote-unquote, free market policies. So they, they were uh, touting her, Turkey's uh, horn primarily based on that, the idea that Turkey was able to combine what the West wanted to see in predominantly Muslim countries 
a weak form of democracy, but a strong form of free market economics. And the AKP was able to combine that with conservative Islamic culture. So that was the idea. Before we look at the current structure of the Turkish regime, we should look at how the ruling bloc was formed under what you call the AKP's first formula for hegemony. Borrowing from Antonio Gramsci and his concept of passive revolution, you argue that the objective effect of Erdogan regime's hegemony was a double absorption of the radical energies of the Islamist revolt against the old ruling order. Through the mediation of the AKP, those energies would be absorbed first into domestic consumerism, glossed by patriarchal piety, and second, into the political, economic, and military structures of the West. Can you talk about this strategy? Also, what impact did the 1979 Iranian revolution, which resulted in Islamists in power, have on the path selected by the AKP in Turkey? That itself is a very long, complex uh, story. So let me try to break it down a little. So before the Iranian revolution, Turkish Islamism had shaped up mostly under the leadership of conservative uh, or really pious, yeah, more than conservative, strongly pious businessmen of the provinces and their alliance with conservative peasants, pious tradesmen, and petty merchants, small merchants, again, of the provinces. So it was not a very urban movement. So what the Iranian revolution did was combine all of the above with an urban poor, pro-urban poor dynamic. The 1970s, more radical Islamic intellectuals started to first propose these ideas based on Said Qutb on the one hand and Ali Shariati on the other, this didn't have much of a mass space in the urban poor. But after the military intervention of 1980 decimated the left and the unions, the urban poor had no leadership, especially the, the more Sunni sections of the urban poor started to slowly shift to Islamism. So by the end of the 1990s, this new Islamism was a very large block which had a left wing and a right wing. So a right wing led by the businessmen and the left wing led by intellectuals who were maybe not very organically, but still conjuncturally supported by the urban poor. So that was Islamism at the end of the 1990s. And what happened afterwards was that the center-right, because of you know reasons like I won't go into right now, this, the center-right and the center-left collapsed at the end of the 1990s and right in the beginning of the 2000s. And the Western-led liberal, neoliberal transformation of Turkey suddenly had no leader or agent. So the, the business wing of the Islamist party saw an opportunity there and they claimed the territory of the center-right. And many secular business organizations and center-right and center-left intellectuals were very happy with this new force in town. 
who were now willing to play the game instead of push for an Islamic revolution. So what happened in the 2000s was that Islamism was absorbed into uh, these uh, consumerist neoliberal uh, structures that were being imposed on Turkey. But whereas in the 1980s and 1990s, this was mostly experienced as an imposition by the IMF, now it was being shouldered by this broad coalition of Islamists. So it became a mass line. And the same thing can be said for the pro-NATO structures of Turkey, for which there was always some mass support. But now with the absorption of this Islamist bloc into Turkey's ruling structures, the the pro-NATO stance of Turkey for the first time became something mass-supported with enthusiasm. You argue that every successful hegemonic appeal is also a polarization. After winning its first landslide in 2002, the AKP positioned itself with growing confidence against Turkey's uh, quote-unquote secular elites, the big bourgeoisie, the upper ranks of the military and the intelligence service. It's clear to you that the Erdoganists, as well as the Golanists, who were AKP's partners in the first hegemonic bloc, their aim was not to dismantle the authoritarian militarist structures of the Turkish state, but to infiltrate and repopulate them. You add that unless the Kurdish question can be solved, uh, no government, Islamist, secular or liberal, will be able to demilitarize Turkey. Can you elaborate on this? Yes, I provided some of the reasons why some as center-left and center-right businessmen and intellectuals supported uh, the AKP's first phase in my previous answer. But what I didn't cover was its uh, stance against the military, at least in appearance. So after the anti-leftist military intervention of 1980, there was an anti-Islamist military intervention in 1997. And actually, it was partially as a response to that that the right wing of the Islamist movement sort of repositioned itself and claimed center-right territory. But they also said, we're not going to push for an Islamic revolution, so we promise everybody that, but we were not happy with this military intervention. And, well, they didn't promise this openly, but in between the lines, they were promising they would erode the military's power. And a lot of center-left and center-right intellectuals, as well as some influential Marxists, so some voices, especially the more intellectual voices within the radical left, supported the AKP because of its promises of demilitarization. And in the late 2000s, around 2007, 2008, the AKP actually explicitly started to say, we are against military tutelage. And they were uh, deriving this uh, slogan or this phrasing, you know, military tutelage, from mostly liberal and left-wing intellectuals. But they fought the military mostly on the military's ideological terrain. So they did not actually demilitarize Turkey they weeded out the generals and the officers 
who were important to the anti-Islamist coup and who further threatened anti-Islamist action. And in the beginning, it appeared that the AKP was making some concessions to the Kurds. And there were, there were actually uh, several concessions. But in the larger scheme of things, they did not really change the ethnic structure of the state. And because of that, they kept on relying on the military to retain that ethnic uh, structure, which was mostly defined and shaped against the Kurds and increasingly more after the 1980 against the armed uh, Kurdish movement. So in that regard, the AKP reinforced Turkey's existing militaristic structures, even though it didn't do so explicitly. So it was doing these, but for several reasons, the liberal and leftist intellectuals, many of them, I shouldn't say all, not all of the left, almost all of liberal intellectuals, and an important section, even if a minority section within the left intelligentsia, supported AKP because of this appearance of demilitarization. Jihan, in your article, you underscore the importance of the military, both domestically and in Turkish foreign relations. You note that its significance was reinforced under the U.S. hegemony during the Cold War, when Washington built Turkey into a frontline NATO bulwark against the Soviet Union. And the U.S. reciprocated by turning a blind eye to operations that trampled on, as you say, every democratic norm. While throughout the 1990s, Turkey's crisis-ridden economy received privileged treatment from the IMF. What do we need to know about the impact of this arrangement on the political developments in Turkey? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think this is very important. It's important to emphasize what I'm saying in this part of the article to correct for some very important and damaging misconceptions regarding Turkey. And I'm not saying this is a, simply a foreigner's or Western misconception. This misconception is very widespread in Turkish academia, in Turkish intellectual circles. And the misconception is that Turkey has this militaristic culture and that is why the military is strong. So it's like sort of a circular argument and a circular assumption. And it is partially true. Yeah, the military has been very important for centuries in the Ottoman Empire, before that in the Seljukian Empire. That is true, that there is something in the culture that favors some militarism. But what that overemphasis on history and culture misses is the 20th century and the Cold War and the global fight against communism, which not only strengthened, but refashioned this militarism. So we can't see this militarism as something uniquely Turkish, because it's not very different from, let's say, Brazilian militarism. Brazilian militarism doesn't happen only because of Brazilian culture. And this militarism is so widespread in the 20th century that we can't ignore the global making of it. And we can't reduce it because of the same reason to each country's own culture. So American hegemony throughout the Cold War and 
Even after that, because of anti-Islamic worries, uh, Islamophobia, supported this militarization and changed its nature, really. So the, the militarism has gone hand in hand with the capitalist development of Turkey. It's not just a reflection of Turkish culture. And if Turkish culture is playing any role, it's mostly secondary. Going forward a little bit, since the early 2010s, multiple impasses, as you identify them, economic, uh, domestic, geopolitical, have confronted the liberal Islamic, quote-unquote, Turkish model. You named the troubled economy as well as the double upheavals of the Arab Spring and the Kurdish uprising as the main factors that combine to stall AKP's quote-unquote passive revolution, the strategy of double absorption pursued by AKP. So let's start with the economy. The AKP entered office in 2002 after the collapse of, as you call it, quote-unquote, pure neoliberalism of the 1990s, which had left the traditional parties severely discredited. In your view, a key aspect of Mr. Erdogan's hegemony was the promise to resolve Turkey's long-standing economic problems and to share its wealth among broader sectors. In their first years in office, the AKP implemented what you call the uh, quote-unquote post-Washington consensus reforms. This involved the encouragement of household debt. Tell us more about these economic policies and their consequences for different classes and social groups in Turkey. Yes, uh, of course, like every concept and every label is uh, somewhat a simplification of very complex uh, processes. So when I talk about pure neoliberalism, like Washington consensus neoliberalism in the 1980s and 1990s versus a more complex Keynesian-influenced post-Washington consensus neoliberalism of the 2000s, that mostly has to do with neoliberalism's stance against poorer sectors of society. So neoliberalism was never pure when it came to, you know, its uh, support for business monopolies and business organization, but it was sort of pure in its attack against all kinds of benefits to poor, lower, middle class people. So when you look at Turkey, free AKP Turkey in the 1980s and 1990s, the common characteristic of um, almost any party that has ruled in these two decades is its attempt to disorganize labor, cut welfare benefits, and basically impoverish the poorer sectors of society. So what changes in the post-Washington consensus is that neoliberalism remains anti-union and anti-organized labor, it integrates a lot of welfare mechanisms. And the overall welfare map is really, really, really complex, actually. So there are targeted welfare mechanisms in health and less so in education in Turkey. So lots of health reforms that benefit the poor. And as importantly, lots of debt, consumer debt and household debt that kind of makes up for the lost wages of mm-hmm. as labor. So yes. the person can no longer expect uh, to live materially satisfactory lives based on their wages. So after the attack on organized labor, that is no longer possible. So what, what the AKP changes is not that part of the picture. So they remain anti-union 
at least in the 2000s, and they keep attacking higher wages. But unlike previous neoliberal governments, they support certain sections of the poor through health policies, as well as consumer and household debt, and increasingly mortgages. And housing for certain groups, as you mentioned exactly, in your article. Yes. No, that, that's, uh, that's another component which is very important. And actually, that, that takes us into the 2010s. It does start in the 2000s, but it's more important in understanding the later AKP and its um, move away from neoliberalism. Because what the AKP does in terms of public housing is different from this uh, support of mortgages and consumer debt in the sense that the state starts to act as an investor in housing. So that, that's a pretty non-neoliberal, I won't say necessarily anti-neoliberal, but it's you know t- typical Keynesianism and developmentalism for the state to step in and provide housing to the poor as well as non-poor supporters of the AKP. So we see that Increasingly so in the 2010s, the AKP starts to move away from neoliberalism or some aspects of it. This private credit built on leverage finance became a serious issue in, in Turkey, didn't it? Yes, uh, exactly. Uh, yes, well, it is, it is pretty serious and uh, it, it changed. I mean, it's, uh, nature changed at every turn of the AKP. There's the 2008 global financial meltdown, which people were expecting to hit Turkey and other emergent markets pretty bad. But that didn't happen. You know, after 2008, we see actually some fluctuations, but then increasing dynamism in countries like Brazil, India, China, South Africa, so on. So all of these other emergent markets and Turkey benefited for about five years. Why did they? Because <laughs> especially what we call hot cash, not tech-heavy capital or anything like that, but finance capital and hot cash escaped Western centers and they flooded these emergent markets. So you see a very small dip in the growth rates in Turkey around 2008, but the economy quickly picks up and keeps growing quite robustly up until 2013, as long as this hot cash escapes the West. And to be clear, this uh, flight of capital from the US and EU, European Union, had a lot to do with near zero interest rates in these entities. As you mentioned in your article. Exactly, yes. Turkey and BRIC countries, as you mentioned, Brazil, Russia, India and China, were beneficiaries of this flight of capital. Exactly, yes. So this is not something, you know, the AKP devised or constructed, but they did benefit largely from this trend. What were the repercussions of this sort of dependent economic expansion? Yes, yes. This was very, very important because it created a temporary illusion. I'm not saying, you know, everybody was deluded, but it did create a temporary illusion that this consumer debt-based, mortgage-based, expansion could go on forever. Look, the West is suffering, but we're not. We're fine. This expansion will last forever. Nobody was, of course, that stupid, but it, it, it was a shared feeling of you know, optimism. 
You write in 2013, Bernanke's announcement that the Federal Reserve would quote-unquote taper quantitative easing, it actually sent these capital flows in reverse, the ones you mentioned, spelling the beginning of the end for the Turkish so-called economic miracle. But somehow, even though Brazil and Russia plunged into deep recession in 2014, the Erdogan regime succeeded in postponing the reckoning for a number of more years. How? What steps were taken by the government? Yes, this is also a very interesting period in the history of the AKP. I was saying, you know, Turkey was just benefiting from these uh, trends. It was not that creative in this uh, first phase of its uh, post-Washington consensus neoliberalism. But there was this growing trend, submerged certainly, but quietly growing trend of uh, state capitalism in Turkey in the 2000s. And as a response to 2013, the reversal of this hot cash inflow, the government just ratcheted up its state capitalism. So more sovereign wealth funds, more states investing in the economy, and slowly, even at least the Islamic organized labor started to be built up as a part of Turkey's state capitalism. So even though the overall economy remained dependent on finance, so I can't, I can't say Turkey didn't suffer after 2013, so that, that, that overall dependence uh, remained, but there was more and more state capitalist activity and it lessened the damage. It uh, cut back on the damage of this reversal, at least temporarily. Where did that capital come from? The state capitalism, where, where yes. there are many sources, it's, it's mostly a growing merger between the state and Islamic capitalists. And uh, this is, uh, of course, a serious step against the established big bourgeoisie. So uh, more and more uh, cooperation between Islamist businessmen and the state. Also, more and more influence of the Chinese model on Turkey and Chinese-influenced intellectuals, including some former Maoists and some other economists from other sectors of the radical left, they're trying to push the government in this state capitalist direction. They were also enjoying, and they still are, the capital from the Persian Gulf area. Of- yes, that, that's, that, that was another source of money. So even if, you know, Western capital started to uh, flee Turkey, there was capital from the Gulf. I mentioned the Chinese economic model as an influence, but there was also growing uh, ties with Chinese businesses and the Chinese state. So new trade routes started to be built. They didn't take over Western trade routes. So they're still in the minority. But all of these, you know, the sovereign wealth funds, state capitalism, Chinese style planning, as well as funds from the Gulf and trade with China, all of these started to act as small cushions. That's UC Berkeley sociologist Jihan Tual speaking with Shahram Aghamir about his recent new Left Review article titled Turkey at the Crossroad in which he examines the shifts the AKP regime has undergone in the context of economic turbulence, domestic unrest, 
and a fractured regional order and reflects on the limits of liberal Islamic Turkish model. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Shifting gears here, you discussed this economic volatility that formed the backdrop to a geopolitical fracture, as you identify in your article, which is how you broadly describe the uh, second factor confronting the quote-unquote Turkish model and AKP's hegemonic bloc. The AKP's initial project was for an Islamizing Turkish-Sunni hegemony over the region that would be integrated into NATO and EU membership. But the Western wing of this strategy had already faltered after 2004 when accession to the EU stalled over the Turkish occupation of northern Cyprus. Starting in 2011, when the Turkish regime was confronted with the insurrections of the Arab Spring, which included the uprising of Syrian Kurds on its southern border. What was the AKP's policy with respect to these developments? And what were the ramifications of these policies? These economic problems were slowly starting to push Turkey away from even post-Washington consensus embedded neoliberalism and away from Western economic models. But as you are saying, what further complicated issues was the EU's growingly anti-Turkish stance. And it is true that this partially happened because of uh, the Turkish occupation of Northern Cyprus. But there there were, you know, maybe 10, 15 factors, not least of which was growing racism and anti-immigrant attitudes in the EU itself. A Turkish insertion into the EU really scared, you know, everybody from the center left all the way to the radical right in the EU. And, you know, the democratic reform was stalling in Turkey and so on and so forth. So that there are many factors as to why the EU process stalled. And then, as as you just mentioned, the further complication of all of this was the Arab Spring. And in the beginning, if you again look at uh, what we started this whole conversation with, The Economist and the New York Times, they were ecstatic when the Arab Spring first started, especially when it came to Turkey. They were saying, aha, we had been talking abstractly about the Turkish model for so long, but now these countries, and primarily Egypt, Syria, and Tunisia, can implement what the AKP has been implementing in Turkey. Now is the opportunity, and it's very likely to happen. But it didn't. Of course, I mean, that, that's a, a huge question why. But the AKP pushed for this diplomatically and peacefully for a year. So the hope was that the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood and Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood and, and Nahta in uh, Tunisia would peacefully and democratically take their countries in the Turkish direction. But all of these attempts failed. They failed violently in Syria, less violently, but still violently in Egypt. And Tunisia is a mixed case, but still it's not moving in the Turkish 
direction. And after that, Turkey started to get more and more aggressive towards the region. So the architect of the first phase of the AKP, Ahmet Davutoğlu, who had built all of these quote-unquote strategic depth and zero problems with neighbors' policies, he was ultimately fired. He was ultimately marginalized and then ousted from the AKP. Turkey pursued a military intervention in Syria. And uh, of course, there were concerned about the, um, the Syrian Kurds. The AKP's government's mantra, as you said, had been zero problem with neighbors. But the shift in the geopolitical situation meant that Turkey had no neighbors with zero problems. Exactly. So turning to national or domestic factors affecting AKP's passive revolution, the double absorption that we discussed earlier, and its hegemonic bloc, it seems like we need to discuss the June 2013 Gezi protest, which erupted against the AKP's construction frenzy <laughs> plans to bulldoze a pretty little Istanbul park and turn it into an overblown, as you call it, Ottoman-esque shopping mall. You characterize Gezi protests as being against urban pillaging, that is, the disposition that Mr. Erdogan and his AKP party had orchestrated. Can you briefly talk about these protests and why you think they were an important moment in AKP's rule in Turkey? Yeah, up until uh, these uh, protests, the AKP was able to foster the sense that it was supported by a majority in Turkey, but it had also neutralized most of the rest of the country, except perhaps the Kurds, even that wasn't very clear. And these protests ended that uh, sense, both domestically and abroad. And why did they happen? Why did they start? They did start against this urban pillaging. As I was pointing out, all of this urban construction and the construction frenzy in general was supported by broad sectors of society. A lot of people benefited from these But a lot of people lost their old homes, their old neighborhoods, and a lot of ecological damage was done to Turkey. All of that damage and losses were the initiating factor in the protests. But once they started, you know, after tens of thousands protested, the reason why it went from tens of thousands of people to millions of people was because everybody who wasn't happy with the AKP joined the protests. So not, not due to this urban pillaging, but due to its uh, patriarchal policies, due to its anti-Alevi policies, due to its anti-secular policies. So it, it became a mass uprising with uh, many, many grievances. So that was pretty unfortunate, of course, for the AKP in that The genie was out of the bottle. So this lie that people were either happy or at least content with the AKP was not right. A lot of people were not. So in that sense, it, it was unfortunate for the AKP. But these protests were fortunate for the AKP because they didn't lead to an alternative block. So all of these different grievances did not gel into a combined set of demands that an alternative bloc could push for. So this created the effect of further freezing 
the Ak Party coalition or some aspects of it, especially the coalition between the poor and the Islamic businessmen. But what the AKP lost after these protests was the liberal support of intellectuals and the liberal support of the secular businessmen and overall the westernizers in Turkey. On that point, Jehan, you also write about how the Gezi revolt catalyzed two further polarizations against the regime, the AKP regime. First, Gulen and the Gulenists, who were part of the ruling bloc and in partnership with AKP, decided to capitalize on Gezi's renewal of oppositional energies to their own benefit. The second one was what you call the short-lived unification of the Turkish-Kurdish left under the banner of the HTP party. Can you briefly talk about these two developments and how they affected the AKP's ability to govern and its hegemonic bloc? Yeah, b- both are very important. Uh, so the Gülenists uh, are an Islamic uh, group in Turkey, which were not very influential at a mass level in the 1970s, but they were important as a part of the military. So it, it, it was the only Islamic a group or the ma- only major Islamic group that was able to organize in the military and the in the civic bureaucracy. And unlike the Erdoganist Islamists and most other Islamic groups, they were always and they are still very uh, pro-Western in many senses of the term. They're pro-NATO. They are committed neoliberals. They are pro-Israel. It comes without saying when you're an Islamist, you're pro-Palestine. But that's not true of the Gülenists. So in that maybe they're Islamic, but not truly Islamist. And what changed after the 1997 military intervention against Islamists was that the intervention was so hardline secularist that it also targeted the Gülenists. So after that intervention, for the first time in their history, the Gülenists and the Islamists combined their forces. And of course, this aligns with all of the other developments I was mentioning about that era from the 19, late 1990s to the late 2000s, when the right wing of the Islamists became, at least in appearance, pro-Western. But, but that doesn't mean, you know, everything was fine between Gülenists and Erdoganists or Gülenists and Islamists. Because Erdogan remained anti-Israel, at least in appearance, because he had business links and many uh, logistical, diplomatic, military links with Israel. And he still has some of these. Uh, But in public, he was anti-Israel. And Gülen and Gülenists were always publicly pro-Israel. So that was always a problem between them. And as Erdogan's relations got more and more tense with Israel... Gülenists and Erdoganists had started to fight. And there were other fights too regarding how they would share the spoils of both neoliberalism and of overtaking the Turkish bureaucracy. So what happened during the Gezi upheaval was that the Gülenists mistakenly thought that they could use this crisis to uh, topple Erdogan and build a more purely westernist version of the 2000s AKP. So they started to push very aggressively in that direction in 2013, and in three years, they ultimately failed. The unification of Turkish and Kurdish lefts under the banner of the HDP, a Kurdish-affiliated party, 
in the aftermath of the uh, Gezi protests included socialists, environmentalists, feminists, LGBTQ activists, and radical Kurds. In the parliamentary election of June 2015, the HDP garnered 13% of the vote in what you call a historic achievement for the radical left in face of the authoritarian, militaristic, Turkist structures that Erdoganism had left intact. Most importantly, the election robbed the AKP, Justice and Development Party, of a sufficient parliamentary majority to push through the transition to an executive presidency at which Mr. Erdogan had long aimed. The country experienced turbulent times between this election and the coup and the counter-coup in July 2016. What do we need to know about this period? It is true that Erdogan always wanted an executive presidency, but he hoped to do this under democratic pretense. So in the beginning, he was not intending to get this aggressive. The Gezi upheaval and then the HDPs, the the Kurdish uh, party's victory, made that democratic pretense impossible. Okay, So Erdogan could no longer behave as if he was a Democrat. So what happened in 2015? Well, as you pointed out, the, the failure of the Gezi revolt had a political consequence. And that was many people figured out you can't, you can't really uh, topple this growing dictatorship just by an upheaval. You need to play a little politics. So this pushed not just the leftists, but a lot of liberals to building this coalition with the Kurds. So the HDP and all of its predecessors, this is a, actually a very long-lived political party, but it has had 10 or so different names because each time the courts closed it down. This Kurdish political party had always had this ambition to be pan-ethnically democratic, not just a Kurdish freedom party, but that never quite happened up until 2015. So after liberals and leftists figured out, well, they couldn't just win on their own, they joined the HDP. And more importantly, there were already many leftists, non-Kurdish leftists inside the HDP. What changed was a lot of ordinary voters figured out the same thing. So this is not just a leadership and intellectual question. A lot of people who have strongly anti-Kurdish or at least, you know, ethnically Turkish nationalist feelings sided with the Kurds. And that's uh, what uh, took the HDP over the election barrier, which had been in place just to prevent the Kurdish movement from getting into the parliament. And what what changed on the Kurdish uh, side of this equation was that many wings of the Kurdish movement back then and now are willing to cooperate and give some concession to Erdogan's executive presidential ambitions as long as he doesn't repress the Kurds. But around 2015, at least the majority of the Kurdish leaders of this party figured out this doesn't make any sense. You know, we need to fight this executive presidency. So the Kurdish movement was either cooperating or silent when it came to 
the AKP's gradual shift to dictatorship. But in 2015, when they got into the parliament, they said, no, you know, we're going to prevent this uh, slow building up of a dictatorial regime, no matter what the cost. And when that happened, Erdoganism got uh, ultimately fascistic. That was the moment of real regime change in Turkey. Of course, there are other important moments like 2010, 2013. So I, I mark all of those turning points in the article. But in 2015, the government started to go decisively in a fascistic direction in its backlash against the Kurds. You argue that uh, the upshot of 2015-2016 upheaval was a new polarization. The AKP's first hegemonic formula, liberal Islamism, was being replaced with its second formula, a novel Islamist, neo-imperialism, as you call it, polarized on the question of Kurdish upheaval and PKK insurgency. And that was essentially a rightward march by AKP. Can you talk about how the class composition and the makeup of the forces in the second formula is different from the first one? And what did that entail? I had mentioned that, you know, the, the Gulenists got more and more uh, self-confident and aggressive against the government after 2013, but they overplayed their hand as they prepared for a coup in 2016. And the, the Erdoganists in the government... They became aware of this coup plan and they forced the hand of the Gulenists to rush the coup. Uh, so the Gulenists attempted this coup in a quite unprepared manner. And as a reaction to that, the regime uh, started to do against one of its own wings, you know, the Gulenists, what it had been doing to the opposition all along. You know, the tens of thousands of people were targeted among the Gulenists. They were ousted from the civic and military bureaucracy. They were imprisoned. They were tortured. It was a horrible bloodbath within the regime, not even against you know, anti-regime forces. This was happening within the regime. But th this had all sorts of unintended consequences mixed in with intended consequences. So this change, this 2016 change, combined with the anti-Kurdish change in all sorts of unexpected ways. So what happened was the Gulenists and the Erdoganists had combined their forces to purge the military of hardline secularists, and they had to fill all of the empty positions with Gulenists. But after this 2016 coup, the Erdoganists did the reverse. So they, they started this even a heavier purge of Gulenists from both the civic bureaucracy and the military bureaucracy. But the purge was so heavy. Who are you going to fill these positions with? So the first uh, resort was all of the uh, ousted hardline secularists. So all of those were invited back in. But this was not enough. They also had to get more and more far-right nationalists into all pockets of the bureaucracy, both military and civic. And that was not enough. They even had to resort to these ex-Maoists. So the, the regime essentially changed in many regards in terms of its cadres and its ideology. And as you were pointing out, the class composition also changed. So the secular big bourgeoisie 
which was on sort of neutral terms with the regime in some regards, in terms of more political questions, but was mostly pro-regime in the 2000s, became more and more marginalized and it became targeted by the regime, the secular big bourgeoisie. So instead of that, who are you going to rely on? Well, the, the Islamist businessmen and the conservative and pious merchants and petty merchants of the provinces and the shopkeepers and tradesmen, they remain central and they remain the core of the whole project, as well as the Sunni conservative urban poor. But in this phase, in this uh, quite fresh phase, so I, we, we can't be sure where it is going, but in these last five years, the regime started to rely more and more on organized labor. But uh, as opposed to the more entrenched organized labor, which is le leftist or center-rightist, now the regime is building its own Islamic organized labor. And within the primary center-rightist trade union confederation in Turkey, there is a solid fascist wing. They have also been, you know, propping up that fascist wing of entrenched organized labor. So it's kind of a corporatist approach to the question of labor. Yes. And of course, the irony of, of the whole thing is that I still can't say neoliberalism is over. So <laughs> all this dependence on hot cash, you know, all of this cooperation with global finance capital, all of this is still in place. But now there's a growing and fascistic state capitalism in the middle of all of this. In November 2015, Mr. Erdogan called a second election in de facto coalition with the uh, far-right National Action Party, MHP, now running on the AKP's staunch record against Kurdish unrest. This time, the coalition gave Mr. Erdogan and the Justice and Development Party, AKP, the parliamentary majority that it had desired. You write that the MHP had been founded in 1969 by an officer serving in the Turkish branch of NATO's Operation Gladio after special training in the U.S. The party's ideology combines pan-Turkic ethno-nationalism with rabid anti-communism, lethally practiced by its quote-unquote youth organization, the Grey Wolves. The party reportedly has uh, deep links with organized crime and gray economy. Can you tell us more about this party and its convergence with the AKP? The Nationalist Action Party has been very important in uh, Turkish history in repressing the left and expanding organized crime and killing minorities. It has killed, you know, th uh, thousands of people, including leftists, uh, Alevi minority and Kurdish people. It was very important in supporting the military's fight against the Kurds, they were pretty hostile to the AKP's first phase. They did perceive them as, you know, fellow right-wingers, but they found them too democratic and suspicious in their anti-militaristic appearance, even though, you know, I mean, they were smart enough to see that just as an appearance. But the, the balance of forces completely changed in the course of the 2010s, and especially after 2015, as the governing party turned anti-Kurd, and as I was saying, after 
the 2016 coup attempt. And it should be mentioned, the Nationalist Action Party affiliated officers and generals within the military were central to blocking the coup attempt. So they knew it was coming and they led the counter-coup attempt against the Gulenists. This is the 2016 coup. Exactly, 2016 coup. A part of the military is under a strong Nationalist Action Party influence. I wouldn't say that for the entire military, but a part of it is. And that, that part was very active in blocking the coup because, you know, they saw where, where this was going, where the AKP was going. And that, that kind of locked in their relationship. So after that point, the AKP which already had lots of social links, not necessarily always political and ideological, but lots of family links, uh, links in, in the base, in trade, etc. Lots of links with the Nationalist Action Party. After this point, it became more consciously ideological and political. And of course, this went hand in hand with the expansion of organized crime uh, you were pointing out and, and the gray economy. And of course, since it's great and informal, we can't put an exact number on it, but a huge part of the Turkish economy relies on these mafiatic and organized crime links. Jihan, since the AKP regime reconstituted itself, as you say, after the 2016 coup, it has found strange bedfellows. Its strategies, as you mentioned, not include an Islamist former general who headed the paramilitary group Sadat, and his mercenary force that played a significant role in Turkey's military intervention in Libya. Another one of these strange bedfellows is an ultra-secularist former Maoist veteran. There is also another economist who has been circulating ideas of a paradigm shift to a new economic program with a strong emphasis on building a technology-capturing national industrial base, which would to some extent imitate the Chinese model He also comes from a Maoist background. What can you tell us about these people and how instrumental they may be in formulating the regime's policies? The regime has a very fluctuating relationship with these people. So, uh, for example, the founder of the paramilitary group Sadat has been, you know, in and out, in and out of the regime. As the same thing applies to um, a much more organized uh, person, this uh, former Maoist, uh, Doğu Perinçek. Well, I'm calling him an ex-Maoist or former Maoist, but occasionally he still claims being a Maoist and he has links uh, to the Chinese Communist Party. And he's very organized within the intelligence forces in Turkey. All of these quite dark paramilitary formations became a part of the regime. So all of these, including the National Section Party too, they, they, they have been filling in the gap left by the Gulenists in one sense. Some of them are less dark in the sense that they are more public and we can, you know, so we can so, sort of track what they're doing from what they're writing here and there. So that, that applies to this economist, one of the primary advisors of Erdogan, who has been trying to push Turkey in a more uh, consistently uh, state capitalist and definitively anti neoliberal direction. I, I called him uh, also a former Maoist in the article. That, that's not entirely correct. So he, he is from 
a more massive Turkish leftist movement, actually, that has its roots in Maoism, but it's pretty distinctly third worldist and Turkish. So these influences are coming from all sorts of directions. And many similar people tried to infiltrate this regime or have an influence on it. But ever since, uh, you know, 2015, 2016, they have become more core parts of the regime. Jihan Tual is a professor of sociology at UC Berkeley. He is the author of Passive Revolution, Absorbing the Islamic Challenge to Capitalism and the Fall of the Turkish Model, How the Arab Uprisings Brought Down Islamic Liberalism. His new book is called Caring for the Poor, Islamic and Christian Benevolence in a Liberal World. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at Vomina radio at gmail. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. America's role in a world transformed. That's the new book by New York Times bestselling author Andrew Basevic. The purpose of our foreign policy has supposedly been to keep Americans safe, yet it has provoked endless wars and an ongoing succession of moral and material disasters. Confronting serious threats of the future, climate change, shifting international power, the rise of information technology, Basevic now calls for a profound overhaul of our national security. His Zoom event with Philip Maldary will happen Tuesday, June 22nd, beginning 6 p.m. For the Eventbrite link, just get on the KPFA website and scroll down the front page. KPFA is the tribal drum. Since 1949, the heartbeat of the Bay Area, always vigilant, keeping you aware and well-informed. We need your help to keep the beat speaking truth to power. We need your deep support to reach our Spring Drive goal. Please dig deep and donate today. Remember, your donation ignites the engine that delivers notable service to our progressive, to our community. progressive community. Help keep the drum beating. beating. Support us today at kpfa.org. Thank you. You're listening to 94.1 FM KPFA and KPFB 89.3 FM in Berkeley.
KFCF 88.1 FM in Fresno and K24ABR 97.5 FM in Santa Cruz and online all the time at kpfa.org. Coming up next, it's going down. But first, the news.